Looking at Luke's judgment scenes, uh, he has been talking about judgment. You go all the way back to chapter 12 and verse 54. All of this is, is kingdom pictures, but in these kingdom pictures, now he's talking about the, the urgency of this and being ready for the kingdom. This is the, this is the meaning of uh, the beginning preaching of the gospel when John the Baptist and Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the idea is repent, the king's coming. The king is, is arrived and you need to be ready for that. So he's been giving these kingdom pictures and we're going to uh, pick up then in his lament over Jerusalem uh, in chapter 13, 31. Before we do, let's, uh, let's begin with prayer. <clears throat> Our kind Father, thank you so much for blessing us today and giving us this great opportunity to be, be together. Please help us as we study. We appreciate so much what you have delivered to us and, and revealed to us about yourself and the kingdom, and we pray that you'll help us to be prepared uh, for your second coming. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, we, we, have, we have noticed, uh, as we've said, a number of things uh, about the kingdom uh, and, and the coming judgment, specifically verse 22 through uh, verse 30. He has mentioned the few that are going to be saved and judgment upon Israel, whereas those from north, south, east, and west are going to come and sit down in the kingdom. But those with, that were in that, that were the ones who were most likely to enter the kingdom would be, would be left out, and there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth when that happened. And then that follows up then here perfectly in verse 31. So let's notice this text, and I'll look for your observations then about, uh, about this final text of chapter 13. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. <clears throat> All right, wait, you notice this, uh, this first section here uh, about some Pharisees telling them about Herod. Uh, going, going, wants to kill you. Uh, what do you? Any, any observations about that? Any, any, anything that is, is striking? Uh, it's obviously weird, isn't it? <laughs> why would a Pharisee? Pardon? Why would a Pharisee? Yeah, why would that? That's the thing that's odd about it. Why would a Pharisee go tell go tell Jesus about Herod coming to to do that? It it doesn't seem to to make any sense unless. Uh, Unless they were trying to uh, scare him, frighten him, cause him to uh, do something that would be out of character for him. Um, notice, uh, notice Jesus' reply. Uh, he calls Herod a, a fox. <laughs> sly, 
someone who, uh, who is not to be trusted, uh, those kinds of things. I'm going to give you a little side note here, by the way. Oftentimes when you're teaching people, you will have a struggle in trying to help them understand literal and figurative language in Scripture. And they, they will make things literal that are figurative. They'll make things figurative literal. Uh, they don't seem to make a differentiation between them. Somehow they will get in their minds that in the Bible, uh, literal and figurative language happens to, uh, is different than what it would be in our normal daily speech. And they would understand figurative language immediately. immediately. Back in the 60s, uh, us guys would say, well, that girl's a real fox. You know, I don't know if we say that today. I don't hear that much. But we'd say, oh, she's a real fox. It didn't mean she had a tail. <laughs> it didn't mean any of those things. It just meant she's cute. That's all it meant. Uh, and everybody understood that. There was uh, not any problem with that. Uh, and kids use those kinds of figures of speech all the time today. Nobody, nobody messes up. We read it in the Bible and they go, boom. Can't seem to understand it. So you, you follow a basic general rule that uh, everything in the Bible is literal unless something in the context demands otherwise. And that's a general rule. It's not an absolute, but it's a pretty good general rule. And obviously, Jesus is not uh, doing that here. And everybody that you would ever study with would always understand that the word fox here it was used in a, in a figurative sense. So it's a good place to use the example when you're studying other texts and they are trying to figure out, like we studied back, <clears throat> in, well, in, in when we were in book of Mark, Mark chapter 9, he said, cut off your hand, pluck out your eye, cut off your foot. It's better to go into heaven without those things than to, uh, than to go into hell uh, with hands and feet. Okay, you will actually study with people who go, really? Actually cut your hand off? No, he's using hyperbole here. And you would say other passages would, of course, indicate that we wouldn't be harming our bodies that way. And also, if I were going to try to keep myself from sinning, I'd have to start here and not <laughs> on my foot or my hand or my eye. Uh, anyway, it's, it's, it's a side note, I realize, but since we're doing, we're doing this class mainly to prepare ourselves to teach somebody else, it's important. Uh, uh, yeah, go ahead, Blenda. He just called him a name. <laughs> yeah. That's a good. That's an interesting point. It is. Yeah. And and of course Jesus is is using again. He's using a descriptive term that everybody there would have understood. We understand it today. Foxes haven't changed. <laughs> They're sly and and uh, all that stuff. And everybody knows uh, Little Red Riding Hood. And, uh, that was a wolf. But anyway, same thing. <laughs> Somebody might ask, but well, why would Herod kill him? Of course, if you knew the story of John, yeah. you know, it would have been a fearful thing. But why would the people that actually wanted to kill him were the people that were coming to death? Because they were the people that got Herod that killed John. 
Yeah. So it's a threat. It's obviously this is something, and maybe, and maybe again, this is mentioned. Maybe the Pharisees are just trying to, you know, kind of like the Nehemiah thing. People come and threaten Nehemiah and see if they can make him uh, do something silly, <laughs> and uh, they can accuse him. Rebecca. sort of thing. The idea in the text is you're not replying in kind. You're not turning in kind. Other passages would tell us, like in Matthew 24, 23, Matthew 24, when he uh, talks about being ready for the return of the Lord, he says a good man of the house would not allow, if he knew what hour the thief was coming, he would not allow his house to be broken into. So there's other passages that give ideas of balance uh, to that. That's the best way I would know without getting us completely off, <laughs> off, off track there on, on that. Okay? All right. So, so you, anyway, you, you see that, and then it, the main thing, I think, yeah, go ahead. Sir. question I would, would come to mind is why would Herod want to Why would Herod want to kill Jesus? To kill Jesus? Yeah. I mean, so this Pharisee wants him, that's odd. Mm-hmm. But why would Herod want to I would just say the same thing, John. But he thought he, he thought John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and he become Jesus becomes a bigger threat to his throne than John. That's a guess, but you know, John Luke doesn't bother telling us. Yeah, another curiosity. Exactly. The Pharisees wanted. That's curious. That's curious. Wants him dead. That's kind of curious. That's right. Very true. Very true. Yeah, that that would be, that's your first guess. Obviously, the Pharisee here is not really sincere about <laughs> warning Jesus <laughs> about this, and uh, it, it doesn't seem to be the real the real problem here. <clears throat> All right, let's let's notice especially this last part, <clears throat> and uh, you know, actually, of course, he goes. He says, "Tell Herod, I'm casting out demons, performing cures today and tomorrow, on the third day I finish my course." Uh, that should have sent Herod a pretty strong message of uh, you need to pay attention to to what's going on here. But he's headed to Jerusalem, and it's not possible that he would uh, that he would uh, a prophet would die, die outside Jerusalem. Notice especially verse thirty four though, uh, and uh, and 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 just this idea that he gives of his 
desire for Jerusalem and yet what is about to happen. What are some of your observations just from verse, verse 34? In the other accounts, uh, Mark, uh, Mark's account, he curses a fig tree on the way into Jerusalem, and uh, because it had leaves, it had a big show, and my good tree, but there's no fruit on it, and it is a picture of Jerusalem. So yeah, beautiful outward, beautiful city, a lot of representation there, but no fruit, and that seems to be the idea. Good. What else would you notice here? predicted this many times and now he predicts it again. Brian. Uh, I see two things. Uh, from one side, I see Jesus' mercy, God's faithfulness to his people, and then Israel's total rejection. That's how many times it clearly shows that there's been many, many, many times God has reached out and tried to bring them in. And it just is that nature that we keep talking about this continual yeah, good summation. You have both the side of uh, the mercy, the desire, the heart of God. How many times I would have gathered you. This, this is painful. Uh, you see this kind of language of, of God's care for his people over and over again in the prophets. How much he yearned for them, how much he desired them, but they refuse. And, and this, is, this is kind of the final. This is the final. Uh, he's, he's entering as a king, and they're rejecting him. Remember, this is the king coming to his city, the king basically coming to take his throne, and they will, and they will kill him. And, of course, he will take the throne anyway, Psalm 2. Uh, and, and so it, it's, it's a sad time for him. And yet, you see those words when he says in verse 35, Behold, your house is forsaken. ESV is used forsaken. I think almost all the other texts... Uh, I checked a number of them yesterday, used desolate, which I, maybe it's just because I'm used to the word desolate in this text and the other passages, but here he uses forsaken. At any rate, either way, you know, what is the picture from the Old Testament? We can, you, have, you have a couple of Old Testament pictures here of this desolate or forsaken. Elizabeth, you were shaking your head, yeah. In Ezekiel, God leaves. Exactly. You have the very graphic picture in the book of Ezekiel 
where God uh, in chapter 8 through, through 11 takes, this, takes his throne up out of the temple and begins to move it and eventually moves it outside Jerusalem where, of course, where the Babylonians are, basically. He's surrounding the city and he just takes it and moves it outside the city, indicating you have no protection in there. Where did Israel in Jeremiah 7, where did Israel put their confidence the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, you know, like God is here. God's in the city. God's here. He won't let Jerusalem fall. And Ezekiel gives that picture of the, the throne of God actually removing itself to leave them vulnerable to the nations. Uh, you know what? That's, that's just us too. If, if God leaves our temple, if God leaves us, we're vulnerable to everything that's going to happen in the world. Jerry. Yeah, and yeah, in the in the in the wilderness tabernacle, obviously there was the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. Uh, later in the temple, it was just uh, that wasn't there apparently, but but you did have the. Everybody recognized the presence of God was, was there in that temple, which was their protection, which was everything that they needed. And, uh, and now, as Jesus says, you know, we're done. Uh, your house is left desolate. I think of a house that somebody has just left it, and yeah. nobody has moved in. The windows are broken out, you know, and then the animals start coming into the house to get yeah. shelter. Yeah. Everything starts falling apart. That's what I picture here yeah. as, the, as the house of the temple. It's good. That's a good. That's a good picture because it's like the owner is gone. He doesn't care anymore. And everything under the sun is going to go in and do whatever they want. That is, that is a really good picture, exactly. And that is what he's, uh, what he's telling them. So it's a, it's a graphic scene. It's a heart-rending scene uh, to see uh, after 1,500 years of God's pleadings and caring about the people. And yet uh, they, they don't care. And, and they're going to actually kill their own Savior. It's, uh, it's amazing. And of course, then those last words in verse 35, you will not see me until you, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What, what, is, what is he telling them there? What's, that, what's the implication of that? You're not going to see me until you say. What's it going to take for them to say that? Repentance. <laughs> until you actually recognize who I am, blessed is he who comes, you're not, you're not going to see my presence again. You connect it to the presence. I'm forsaking you. City is forsaken. Until you say this, uh, you yourselves are never going to be in my presence. Uh, remember that presence scene has been going on way back here, even in verses 22 through 30, where you're going to see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom, and you yourselves cut out, uh, cast out. So that, that scene of God's presence with them follows the theme down through this text. All right? Yeah, just that's the way it had always been. 
<laughs> every prophet that was sent to Jerusalem gets gets killed or abused or whatever, and it's that's just the pattern exactly. So he's showing that he is, or and again, Luke's account doesn't go into this because he's probably because he's talking to Theophilus. But in Matthew's account, he's in chapter 23, he's connecting himself with all the prophets that were killed before because the Jews often said, oh, we would have never done what our fathers did. And Jesus is going to say, you not only would have, you're going to, and you're going to kill me. So that's the idea. Good. All right, let's get on to chapter 14 here. This is a, this is a fantastic uh, scene, goes really through the whole chapter. I was basically hoping, uh, uh, but I'm always hoping beyond hope, uh, that we'd be able to uh, get through most of this. At any rate, 14.1, one Sabbath, emphasis there, right? You always want to circle that one. Here we have a Sabbath. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. And then he goes on with the parable. So this, this continues to go. But before we go further... Get yourself in the scene when you when you when you step into that house and you're in the scene here. What what do you see? What what's what's going on in this dinner party? Okay, yeah. The first thing you think of is there's some kind of setup here. What what causes us to make the to to indicate that this is probably a setup? Pardon? Yeah, they're watching him closely as to what he's going to do. What what else would indicate that? He asked them a question. He says to them, right up. Yeah, he know he already knows what they're doing. He, he boldly just says, uh, "Anybody think it's wrong to heal on the Sabbath day?" All right, there there's that. Uh, does it surprise you that the guy with dropsy is there? Yeah, what are they inviting him for? They don't invite people like that. They have invited him because it's a setup. Now, all of this, in fact, you notice after Jesus heals him, he says, you might as well leave. <laughs> You're not sitting down at table with him anyway. <laughs> you might as well just go your way and have a better dinner than you'd have here. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting interesting scene all the way through. And, and of course, we, we have talked about extensively how many times Jesus heals on the Sabbath because the Sabbath is the most natural day to show God's deliverance from bondage. It's deliverance every time. Deuteronomy 5.15, the reason Israel observed the Sabbath was to remember they were in bondage. And this is pictures of the new deliverer, Jesus, like Moses, the new deliverer, the new kingdom maker, the new nation bringer, etc., is doing these things. And of course, as usual, they can't reply, but they don't change. <laughs> They're stuck, but they don't change. By the way, I was talking to some, one of the members here the other day, uh, 
she's she's working with somebody, trying to teach somebody, and trying to understand how she would answer some of the things. And and as she's talking about the lady, and she says, "I've tried this, and I've tried this, and I've tried this," and I said, "Remember, you could be you could give all the perfect answers, and she couldn't reply, but it doesn't mean she'll change." Oh yeah. I said, yeah, took me years to learn that one. You, you can have the absolute perfect reply, and Jesus did over and again. It doesn't mean they'll change because the problem isn't evidence. The problem is the will and whether or not I want to give up things in my life in order to follow the king. That's always the problem. That's always the problem. So you find and you run into people that are eager to give up their life to follow Jesus. And then you find also, just like these people uh, did with Jesus, he could talk to them all day long and talk to them for three and a half years, and they're not going to change uh, because that's just who they are. And that's what they want. So really important. All right, it's a parable. I, I would, by the way, I, I, I have entitled this many times as I've studied this text, Jesus wrecks a dinner party. <laughs> because that's exactly what he does. He just wrecks a dinner party. So verse 7, now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor. Let someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin to shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Okay, what's your take on this? Odd little scene sitting around a dinner table and Jesus wrecking the dinner <laughs> again with some things that he says. What is his message? He's obviously really concerned about when people go to a dinner party, where they're going to sit. He's, that's, that's the, we can go on, right? <laughs> presumptuous, maybe proud about being a Pharisee or in this case and that God will um, humble the proud but he will honor the humble. That, that contrast maybe is what, is what I, I think the principle here is, yeah. is that um, don't elevate yourself, wait to be elevated. Yes. And, and yeah, that's the obvious in a dinner party or something else but, but I think what you're saying is in the kingdom don't make these assumptions that you're being, you're being honored. Yeah, this is, this is, again, this is a kingdom picture. Jesus is not, we're not, to, we're not supposed to read this and go, okay, next time, Adam, out of potluck, don't jump up in front. Uh, you know, that, that's, uh, that, that's just silliness. Let somebody tell you to go first. Um, Okay, uh, sure, uh, <laughs> but that's not the real message that he's giving. Notice the beginning of the verse 7. What's the word? Parable, right? <laughs> All right, so we are to learn something greater than simply a story about taking a 
higher place at a dinner party. And as Chip said, don't promote yourself. You let God promote you. Well, the, an issue these Pharisees certainly dealt with is they did want a seat of honor. There was a great uh, infighting, you might say, to see who was going to be seated closest to the person who was uh, throwing the feast and who the feast was being given in honor of. Um, that that concept in a physical way is annoying, and frustrating. Yeah. But but it's not it's not happenstance. This this is right after he heals the man of dropsy, and that that very physical concept of I'm going to lift myself up and put myself. Um, I'm going to be presumptuous about where I fit in the scheme of things. Um, the Pharisees were well known for doing the same thing with people who were of a uh, uh, more problematic physical situation, whether that's dropsy or some illness, or a uh, personal financial situation, and, and that they used all of those sorts of things to establish who should be given honor. And lo and behold, they always determined that they should be given honor. Yes. <laughs> Often, how people who dole out honor end up, right? Um, and then, if if we're going to live in the kingdom, there's only one person, one being that honor comes from, and it's not doled out by me because I put myself in some pecking order. But people, as Jesus has often said, the one who's the greatest among you should be your servant. And uh, you, you worry about God's honor. You don't worry about everybody else's honor because everybody else's honor means absolutely nothing in the grand scheme of things. And so look, look for that. And everybody else's honor can be really wrong too <laughs> and wrongly placed. Good point, isn't that good? Yeah, yeah, he just performed a miracle. Look at the honor they're giving him, zero. <laughs> That's exactly right. Again, it, that, that's those kinds of things, the signs and miracles that Jesus did, and they ignore that and talk about how you did something on the Sabbath day, which is absolutely astounding. Sherry? Yeah. The thing that I see is that, and that, that, that kind of different classes of people. If you were, if you were, um, had some sins, or if you had, if you will go to the lowest room. And or if he had some problems, you go to the and he had some physical problems and another time to go to the street. And I see different classes of people where Jesus is saying, here in heaven there are no different classes. Yeah. They're all the same. Yeah. Yeah, in his kingdom in in heaven, the whole thing, yeah, there's not going to be uh, different classes, and uh, and that is the problem of humanity uh, over and again, uh, and it still goes on today. Uh, excellent, excellent point. All right, notice now further, verse 12, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, and this would fit, of course, this previous parable, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. 
All right, similar message, isn't it? Uh, act this out in how this humility out in not exalting yourself, act it out by exalting others. You be the one who actually exalts those that nobody cares about and nobody would exalt. You be the one who would, who would bring them uh, to your house. Um, very, very, very important principle, I think, even, even to this day. Who are the people who are most likely to respond to the gospel. Not, not the people living in million dollar homes. Uh, the people who are uh, more uh, hu of a humble estate and uh, sometimes we ignore it. Uh, churches very often fit into a very narrow economic realm. And it's, it's because of who we relate to in our world around us. And people that are not within that narrow economic realm oftentimes are not uh, uh, treated the same, and therefore the church stays within that economic realm. And we need to be careful uh, about that. It's a very, very, very strong warning here. Any other thoughts about that? Comments there? You're doing for others, you can't pay you back. Yeah. You can't be exalted. Yeah, you can't be exalted. You can't, they're not going to, oh, you know, you had me, I had, you had me over, I'll have you over, uh, that, that sort of thing, exactly. Which really shows where your heart is. Your heart isn't trying to do something for you. Your heart isn't trying to, um, to get an advantage uh, in some way in this life. Your, your heart is to care for somebody else. Jacob. Um, you'll be repaid for the resurrection. So you, can't, you, won't be, you might not say it here. Probably won't, but you will. Yeah, eventually there's a resurrection, and that's where you really want to be repaid. <laughs> exactly. All right, let's look on verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard this, these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Where do you get that idea? <laughs> he must have heard it. He must have heard it. Uh, again, th these are allusions to a number of Old Testament texts. Anytime you think of, and that we could mention many of them, but anytime you think of a kingdom feast, think of Isaiah 25. Uh, it's a good, good parallel. Uh, Isaiah 25 deals with that and talks about the greatness of God's feast, this great feast that we will have in the kingdom. Jesus, of course, he's about to tell the parable of the great supper, uh, Matthew 22. He had the parable of the marriage, uh, wedding feast. There's, there's, feasting is a picture of kingdom, uh, kingdom joy and kingdom blessings. And therefore, you can just see this guy. He's just all excited. He says, ah, it's just going to be great. And Jesus then answers. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike begin to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field. I must go and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Uh, 
So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and it's st there's still there's room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. All right. What do you need, what do you need to highlight in this? What do you need to highlight in this text here? This picture parable here that he gives. Say, I seek excuses against serving the Lord. Yeah, yeah, obviously right off he deals, there's going to be a lot of, you know, the guy says, blessed is who comes in. He says, there's a lot of people who aren't excited about it. And they're going to find reasons not to. Good. Okay. Picture of uh, God's chosen people rejecting. Yeah, what in the text indicates that God's chosen, that he's referring to the Jews being the ones who reject? Uh, well, that, that uh, they'd already been invited. Exactly. Exactly. You see the ones invited. And you'll see that same thing in the marriage feast of Matthew 22. You see those who were invited. That they had been given invitations for this kingdom for 1,500 years. This had been a prep thing. And then the time of the supper finally happens. And he goes, okay, you guys all accepted the invitation. Now come on. And then you get the excuses. Uh, well, as we would say today, I, I really can't come because uh, I need to rearrange my sock drawer. You know, you just <laughs> have some really insignificant dumb things just to try to get out of it because you're not really that interested. And uh, so he brings up, uh, brings up those, those excuses. Uh, what, before you get into the excuses, what, what else is, I mean, just in a physical picture, this, this picture of the supper, what, what, what strikes you about that? What should really be something that... What stands out to me is that he wants to, the, the, the person giving the feast wants to fill the Yes. And I, I have gone to a tremendous amount of work to make this great supper. And, uh, you know, I got eight people showed up and I was expecting a hundred. I mean, this is, this is tragedy. <laughs> the, the, this is not what I had envisioned here. Uh, and any of you who have uh, had uh, dinner parties and you, you really go to a lot of work, uh, Teresa and I learned uh, uh, when we were a uh, long, long time ago, all the way back to California, uh, if you invited somebody and they'd say, oh, that sounds great. That didn't mean they said they'd be there. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> and and uh, it's like, wait a minute. After a while, and when people like that didn't show up, we started realizing, yeah, they said it was great. If nothing better comes up, maybe I'll show up. Not nice. Insulting. And usually it's done by people who never had a dinner party or never hosted one. And they don't realize how much work that went into that and how much expense that went into that and, and how much joy went into 
having a group of people in their home. And this is Jesus, this is God making this tremendous dinner party. He gave his life for that party. And then the excuses, and you can then see why it says that the master of the house was angry. No doubt. So it, the, before you even think about excuses, and this is when you're teaching somebody, this is what you really want to pound home. I, I always thought, well, just go to the excuses. No, pound home this principle. The Lord made a great dinner party for you. It is beyond anything you can imagine. You are just spitting in his face to say, I'm not interested. It's, it's, it's the worst insult ever. And, and that's, that's, that bigger picture is what you want to get across here, is the insult that's taking place at that. All right? Well, how, okay, now t- talk about the uh, excuses for a second. What do you see? There's categories to these. What do you see as far as these excuses? Pardon? Yeah, you, you, got, you got a work-based thing uh, uh, about I, I bought an oxen and I need to go try them out. Uh, you know, so I, you know, I've got my business here that I got to be worried about. Uh, he, he bought a field. Got to go out and look at it. What's that indicate? Possessions. Yeah, it's like, you never remember buying a car, new, used, whatever, doesn't matter. You park it in the garage or whatever, and, and you know, you just before you go to bed, you just kind of open the door and go out and look at it. Oh, that's, that's pretty. <laughs> that's, that's nice. <laughs> There's that possessions thing, the desires of the eyes. And then I, I love the last one. Well, I married a wife, so I cannot come. Do you realize, I just got to tell you this, <laughs> So I did the premarital when I was in California. I did a premarital for a couple, a young couple. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, and I performed the wedding ceremony and the whole thing. The wedding was on a Saturday night. And, and you know, they go on their honeymoon. They actually done their honeymoon in San Diego. Uh, so when they got back and we got together for a Bible study, I said, so where did, where did you happen to, I'm just being serious, said, where did you happen to worship when you went uh, on Sunday uh, last week? And worship? We, we just got married. And I went, well, wait a minute. I think I see this in this text here. <laughs> what? what? <laughs> it's exactly the reason Teresa and I got married on Friday. <laughs> it, 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 it's just like relationships, family. Yeah, what's more important to you? I, I always thought it interesting that none of the things are bad. Yeah, exactly. These are not sinful things. Exactly. None of these things are wrong of itself. Of course not. It's where you put the priorities. And then you have this, this go out quickly and get the land. We already did that. We'll go into the hedges and the, and the highways. And who are they pull, pulling in now? Yeah, they're pulling in the Gentiles. They're pulling in the, the, all the, uh, the others. One excuse is good enough. <laughs> One excuse is good enough. You know, they don't want Jesus. They don't want Right. It's all the same. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, great, uh, great text. And when you're teaching somebody, this is where you can really talk priorities and where their earthly priorities must be. Uh, very, very difficult. This is, this is where you get to the hard part 
uh, with anybody that you're teaching. It's not whether or not they're going to be baptized. It's whether or not they're going to give their life up. That's, that's where it is. And then, of course, this next section will do that, uh, which you look at uh, next week. So be sure and look at that and, uh, and then get into uh, also the great chapter 15, Parable of Lost Things. Thank you very much. Good, good comments.